one of our big rocks here at Grace Fellowship is the big rock of grace. And what we started to see last week from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 is how this big rock of grace not only saves you and changes you, it also empowers you to live radically different than the rest of the world around us, including how we handle our money. Which is why the Apostle Paul goes out of his way in these two chapters to replace the word give with the word grace as often as he can. In fact, he even refers three times, he uses a phrase, he even refers to our sacrificial giving three times as, quote, an act of grace. Not debt, not guilt, grace, an act of grace. Why? Because I hope you realize nothing puts on display the amazing grace of our God, quite like our sacrificial giving. Because I hope you realize you can't see grace. You can't see, you can't hold it in your hand. Oh, but you can see the effects of God's amazing grace in the lives of people who have been changed by it in ways that our world would say, now that's unusual, that's unique, that's worth noting. How do you do this? Why do you do this? What is going on in your life? Which is why Randy Alcorn, I think, describes it so well when he says, as thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. I hope you realize we have seen some of the thunder of that giving, that grace giving right here in our church family. Some of you I know are new. Some of you have been here for decades. But I want you to know this series is not about, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, we don't have money. No. It's about, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, people are in a mess with their money. And I love you enough to actually tell you what the Bible says. I'm your good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. Because, man, we use money all the time. We need to know what God says about it. There's been a thunder of grace giving here in our church family that gives God glory. Trust me, for the past 24 years, I'm heading into year 25. For the past 24 years, as I've preached the grace of God and as we've sung about the grace of God and as we've even been that church that sits down with people one-on-one using our Bibles to counsel people in the grace of God, the church family has responded to the lightning of God's grace with a thunderous response of grace giving. As the end of last year, at the end of last year, 2019, our church family has now given $55 million to the ministries of Grace Fellowship Church around the world. Now, if you're new and you're sitting there saying, well, duh, yeah, it's a huge church with three campuses. Let me be kind. Shut up. No. (laughs) Here's what you need to realize. Oh my goodness, we've not always been a church of 2,000 with three campuses. What this means that $55 million has now come through here to the ministries all around the world is that for a lot of years, a small group of people, and a lot of them are still here, were giving away a thunderous amount of money because of, because of being put in a headlock. And No, I didn't even preach on giving until 2006. Because of the lightning of God's grace... It's been a response. Because I hope you realize our giving is a reaction 
to God's previous and powerful action of grace in our lives. Which is why I love that. As thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. And so I want to thank hundreds of you. Hundreds of you sitting at all three campuses for the way you have thundered back to the grace of God in your life by your sacrificial giving in and through what God is doing at Grace Fellowship. But let's dig into chapter 9. Last week we walked through chapter 8. What does chapter 9 have up for us? What can we learn about grace giving in chapter 9? You follow along as I read it. Chapter 9, verse 1, 2 Corinthians. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your willingness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that's another word for Corinthians, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. But whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves, what kind of a giver? A cheerful giver. And God, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, and Vicki says I say that about every verse, but I don't. Tell her I don't. And God is able. Well, that's three great words already if I didn't say anything else. God is able. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times... You may abound in every good work. As it is written, now he's going to quote from Psalm 112. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only, that's an important not only. Folks, I hope you don't hear, oh my goodness, people have needs. Oh my goodness, ministries have needs. It's true. But just making you aware of the need will not motivate you enough. There's something else that happens. When you give sacrificially and generously, yes, it meets a need. And it gives glory to God. God gets thanks. God gets glorified. Because the world says, how would you do that? Why would you do that? What is going on with you? Watch what he says. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings. Not to you. To God. 
by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. He's talking about your submission to what God's teaching about giving. You say, I'm going to trust you. I'll live this way. Because of your submission, and that submission flows not from a plea, not from guilt, not from law. Look what it says. Flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. If you were here last week, you remember as I closed out, I said, oh, listen to me. Sacrificial giving is a gospel issue first with financial implications that flow from it. When you're gripped by the gospel and the resurrection power and the freedom he's given you and the riches you have in Christ... Sacrificial giving flows from it, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. When you begin to give sacrificially and generously, you put on display that you have amazing grace of God on you. The lightning of God's grace is just striking left and right in your life. The surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He brings it back to Jesus. Thanks be to God. We give because he first gave to us and not out of debt, but out of gratitude. 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 So, what can we learn about grace giving From this chapter 9. Here's the first thing, number one. Your giving will never be extravagant until your heart stops being resistant. Oh, listen to me. I hope you realize it all starts in the heart. Any radical change, any new movement in your life, any new direction in your life that's going to last any length of time is connected to a significant heart change first. Heart, heart, heart. Look what Paul says about the heart in verse 7. Each one, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Listen, until you make a new decision in your heart, you'll never make a new decision with your money. Heart and money go together. Heart and money go together. Now, don't make a mistake right now. In our culture, when people talk about the heart, oh, follow your heart. Oh, vomit. They usually mean feelings and emotions. I'm feeling a certain way. I'm going to ride that feeling into the sunset. Yes, disaster lies ahead for you. Giddy up. The Bible's not talking about feelings and emotions. When the Bible talks about the heart, that's why it says things like, as a man or woman thinks in the heart, you think in your heart. When the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about the processing center. That's the control center of your life where we process What is life all about? It's where we interpret. It's where we connect the dots. It's where we decide what we truly believe. It's what you prize and treasure and want. That's all going on in the heart. In other words, it's also what motivates you to do what you do. Why do you do what you do? What do you think is most important? That's all going on in the heart. As each one has decided in his heart, in her heart. It all starts in the heart. See, here's the deal. And so what that means, hope you can see that if your heart is building your life around something else in this world that you actually think will satisfy you and give you security and give you a sense of purpose and identity, that's where your money will go. 
You can say all day long with your lips, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, like a little pull string doll. Jesus is Lord. Where your money goes shows what you really believe is most important, what will really satisfy you and lead to security and identity and purpose. You don't have to like it, folks. I'm not making this up. It is an irrefutable biblical principle. Heart and money go together. Heart and money go together. Because here's what you see. What you have a heart for, you find money for. Isn't that amazing? I mean, let's be honest, right? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, one of the coaches says, oh, your son is super gifted. So now, here's the deal. You can spend thousands of dollars so that he can travel and you can pay for hotels and have to eat all your meals out and never be in church on Sunday. Sorry, I'd have, I, I, I'm on a rant. But it costs money. And it's amazing how these, don't hear me saying it's a sin if you have your son or daughter on a special team. Do hear me saying it costs money. The same money that sometimes we act like, oh, we don't have extra money. We don't have, suddenly you find it. Because Billy's good. Yeah, whatever. So is Jesus. Jesus is good. Why didn't you find some money for that before Billy began to hit the ball out of the park? Like, I'm not saying you can't do that, but how did you do that? And some of you went into debt and put it on a credit card because it's that important. What you have a heart for, you'll find money for. Heart and money. So right now, let me ask you. So what's going on in your heart? You say, I don't know. I get it. The Bible says that it's hard to get your arms around your own heart because the heart can, is deceitfully wicked and it's hard. So let me rephrase it. I'm saying, what's going on in your heart? What's going on with your money? Where's all your money going? That shows God where your heart is. Listen to me. You don't have to like it. I just want you to accept it and stop living in the land of deception and make believe. If little or none of your money is going into the things of God, starting with your local church and then other people and ministries around the world, little or none of your heart cares about the things of God. I drop. I didn't make that up. God did. Money and heart go to gather. As your money goes, you put on display what's really roaring in your heart and what you truly think is most important. And here's what breaks my heart. It looks like the culture's gone there for sure, but it looks like a lot of Christians have decided that chasing the American dream is more important than getting in on what God is doing around the world. Kingdom business, because that's where most of their money is going. Oh, listen to me. I hope you realize the ticket price on the American dream. So when I say that, when, when that first was coined, what it meant was immigrants were coming from countries where they were starving. They were watching their children die, where we lived a whole year on nothing but potatoes, Ireland. And they came to America and they were in search of, get this, a good life. You can make a good life here. We won't starve. Folks, the ticket price on the American dream has changed from a good life to a rich life life. Our definition of that good life has gone up significantly. And that's where so much of our money is going, even with Christians. And the change can be documented. This is not me just with a bad attitude as a pastor. The change can be documented, folks, by the American Council of 
education. Here's what they said. In 1966, as college freshmen entered college and were surveyed and asked, what are your most important goals in life? 80% of them said, one of my most important goals is to shape a philosophy of life or meaning for life. What is life really all about? I want to learn. I want to get a hold of that. And 40% of those freshmen in 1966 said, I want to be well off financially. 30 years later, that thing was reversed altogether. And freshmen entering college who were surveyed and asked the same question, 75% of them said, I want to be, quote, very well off financially, end quote. And only 40% cared anything about developing a philosophy or meaning of life. Why? Let me help you. Here's what's happened in our culture. Our culture has conflated money and meaning as if they are the the same thing. To conflate something means to bring them together as if it's synonymous. Our culture has decided, and it projects it through movies and advertisements and everything else. Money is the meaning of life. This is the ticket. This is how you'll have the good life. This is how you'll have everything. And it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. Some of the most unhappy people that are in rehab have tons of money. Sports figures, Hollywood, musicians. Why are they all killing themselves? Why do they need drugs to go to sleep and then drugs to wake back up? Because they're not happy. They've not found the meaning of life through money. This is a lie. And it's being proven in record numbers right here in America by the number of people, adults, handling life so poorly. So poorly. So much depression. So much anxiety. So much, so much, so much. And it is especially pronounced, you guys, where you see it the most is in the American middle class. The American middle class. Which, by the way, if you look at statistics, our American middle class now is wealthier than any American middle class has ever been. And yet they are the most anxious and most depressed. What's going on? Well, let me help you understand what part of it is. I'm not saying it's the whole thing, but part of it is this. The accumulation of more stuff has only made life more complicated and stressful. I hope you realize this. All the stuff that we thought, well, that'll, that'll really be fun. That'll be fun. Yes, houses and appliances and hot tubs and motorized toys and vehicles and a second home. Don't hear me saying it's a sin to have any of that. Do hear me saying it's stressful. It breaks. Then you got to find the warranty. Then you got to call the repairman. Then you got to fight on the phone. Right? We're all stressed out with our stuff, our stuff, our stuff, our stuff. The accumulation of more stuff has led to more complication and stress in life, not less. A few years ago, the New York Times, this is not a Christian article, New York Times ran an op-ed piece where researchers at UCLA surveyed and observed middle-class families. And they learned a lot, but here's what they saw consistent across the board. Absolutely consistent across the board with middle class families was this. The mother's stress hormones spiked during the times that she had to deal with all of their possessions. Right? Cars and appliances and stuff. 
Her stress hormones spiked during all the time she had to deal with all of their possessions. And the survey showed 75% of those middle-class families could not park one of their cars in their garage because it's so jammed full of stuff. Right now in America, we have the largest homes in the world Second only to Australia. When you look at surveys, it's like, good grief, what are they doing in Hong Kong and China? How do you live like that? Like 980 square feet, stuff like that. We have the largest homes, second only to Australia, and yet we can't, we still can't fit all our stuff into these supersized homes because now there has spawned a $22 billion personal storage industry. Do you realize that when you drive down the interstate and you see that store all and think, ah, whatever, he's probably barely making it. No, he's making a lot of money. You want to make some money? Throw up some storage units because Americans keep buying after their basement and their attic and every walk-in closet is full. We have so much stuff, we have to rent another building to find a place to put it. And yet, yet, those same surveys show The level of happiness among Americans is one of the lowest in the world. Other people have less, far less, and yet have more joy and happiness. Stuff is not the answer. Randy Alcorn helps us understand part of what's going on. Listen to what he says. Quote, another benefit of giving is freedom. You do realize, I hope, that all the stuff you bring into your life that you think will serve you can actually enslave you. And all of a sudden, what you thought you owned owns you. It owns you. It starts, that's the, that's the danger with stuff. It starts to own you. He goes on to say, it's a matter of basic physics. The greater the mass, the greater the hold that mass exerts. The more things we own, the greater their total mass, the more they grip us setting us in orbit around them. Finally, like a black hole, they suck us in. Quote me on this. Stuff sucks. <laughs> that giant sucking sound and that feeling you have in life, we think, what is going on? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so stressed? Why am I... Part of it. Don't hear me saying all of it. You may have a difficult marriage, a difficult son, a difficult daughter, a difficult voice, b- boss... Maybe a difficult voice. But add this. That sucking sound is your stuff. And it's stressing you out. And it's making life more complicated. We've got Christians who've been sucked into the black hole of stuff. And sacrificial giving is the way out. And a ticket to freedom. Vic and I thank God. There are times I wish we had somewhere to put stuff. But praise God, since we bought a home that was built in 1976 and it has no attic. I mean, it has the old school attic. You know, hunch over and tiptoe across boards or bang your head into nails. It's not where you're going to put stuff, right? We have no unfinished basement. We have no walk-in closets. Guess what we have to do? Either use it or give it away. If one of the kids aren't productive, they're gone. It's like everything here needs to be useful. When's the last time you were useful? Out. It's like we have no room to just keep stuff or collect. Oh, I'm a collector. No, I'm not a collector. I can't collect nothing. And it's actually a blessing. It forces us to think, when's the last time I used this? 
give it away. Either throw it away or give it away. Oh, there's a freedom. Freedom! Braveheart. (laughs) But here's what you need to understand. There is an extra step between a heart change and actually a change with your money. Did you realize that? You can actually have your heart changed and get it and say, oh my goodness, I don't want to keep living like this. Oh, and you're willing, but you still can't give. And here's what I want you to understand. Until you take that next step, a heart change is step one of a two-step process. Until you take that next step to get ready and able to give, to make plans to give, to change how you're living, you still won't be able to give. You'll just say now, oh, I wish we could give. That's a great opportunity. Oh, I wish we could give. And here's what I love about the Bible. Lots of things I love about the Bible. But here's one of them. You never read the Bible and find yourself saying, that is so out of touch with real life. I read it and say, oh my goodness, that's just like us. It's like he knows what we're like. The Apostle Paul understands He knows the Corinthians have had a heart change and they're willing. But until they make progress and preparations to give generously, it still won't happen. And so that's why I think it's interesting. Number two, willing to give is not the same as being prepared to give. Five times in the first five verses of chapter nine, Paul uses the word ready or readiness. Did you hear it? I don't want to get there and you're not ready. I want you to be ready. Even in chapter 8, in verse 6 and 11, he said, complete this act of grace that you started. Finish what you start. Don't we often have great intentions? You hear a message like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to give more this year. I, I'm, I'm grateful for that response. But listen to me. If you don't sit down and figure out where it's all been going and make changes and prepare to give, you'll end 2020 saying, dang, we meant to give more, but oh, well. Ready, ready, ready to give is step two. Getting ready. Here's what's interesting. The Greek word for ready there is a word that means to get prepared, to make progress towards a goal, or to be in a condition that you can take action. Perfect. I want you to get in a condition where you can take action. It may take you some time, depending on where you are financially and the mistakes perhaps you made in the past. But it's worth it. It's worth it. It It's like Vicky and I, a couple years ago, sat down with a financial planner to make sure that we weren't giving away too much money. And we're going to be in a Winnebago in the driveway of one of the kids. So we said, are we going to be okay? Like, we love to give away, but I also want to make sure we've got something in retirement. And there was a phrase this guy kept using. If you weren't planning and preparing for retirement in the right way, when would you want to know it? Like today, right now, let me bring this to you. If you were not handling your money in a way that glorifies God so that you would not be ashamed on the day you stand before him, when would you want to know it? Like right now, I hope. And then don't just say, oh, that's unfortunate. Make. Changes. Vicky and I made some changes on our retirement to what we were doing. Shifted some things around. Did not stop giving generously, but made some changes rather than waiting. Same way with this. If you're not planning for eternity in the right way, start making changes today. Because I understand 
Most of us are not, not living with a pile of money off to the side that you're like, I don't know what to do with that. Most of our dollars have a name on it and are going into buckets in our life. It's just how it is. I get it. I know you can't give what you don't have, right? Now I'm going to say something that might tick some of you off. But hey, I don't mind that. You can't give what you don't have, but some of you, you don't have it because of the way you keep spending it. And it's not that God didn't give you enough that you could give some away. Giving some of it away has just not been on your radar. And trust me, human nature is we will absorb everything that comes our way. It's not that hard to do. It just happens all of a sudden. It's like stuff in your house, right? Did you mean to get that cluttered? Did you mean to get that crowded? It just happened. Trust me, it just happens. All of a sudden you're like, we're still living on everything we make. And every time I get an increase or a bonus or something, it's like, I still don't have anything left. Welcome to the real world. That's just how it is. You're going to have to intentionally hit pause and say, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How are we going to get ready to give? How are we going to get in a condition that we can take action instead of saying, well, I wish we could give. Wouldn't you love to be able to say, we're ready. We're ready to give. Thank you, God. That is so exciting. We're ready to give. So how would you get ready? Well, I don't have Bible verses for this next section, but let me just share with you some of the steps that I found helpful in our own life to get ready. Number one, stop guessing what you're giving and get the facts. Here's what I think is interesting. I don't meet many people that have no idea what they made last year. We know that because it's important, but it's prevalent that Christians have no idea what they gave away last year. Why? I'm afraid because it's not that important. I track two numbers. What was my income and what was our giving? What was my income and what was our giving? Here's why. None of us mean to be liars. But here's what I find. What we intend to do and think we've done is often very different than what we actually did. Oh, I thought you were going to set us up with people. I thought you set it up. I thought you gave. I thought you already. Nobody did. But everybody wanted to. Listen to me, one of the best things you can do is move your giving out of the land of what you think you've done into the real world of what you actually did by crunching numbers. So here's what I want you to do right now. This is a great time for these messages because we just closed out a year and we're in a new year. I want you to get a figure in your head. You don't have to write it down. You're not gonna have to say it out loud. What percentage of your income do you think you gave away last year? to your local church and other people and great ministries around the world. What percentage? Now to do that, you have to have a little math. You got to know what you made. You got to know what you gave and then do that percentage thing. Okay, here's what you just did. You just guessed. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to actually go home. And crunch real numbers by looking at your checkbook, by looking at credit card statements, and by looking at those year-end giving statements that I hope you got piled up on your desk like I do. Because I want to send it into the IRS and get a discount and some benefit on that. If you give to ministries, they send you a year-end statement. Awkward moment. Got any of those laying around? Your church will give you one. Other great ministries will give you one. And you, if you want to know what you gave last year, you can figure it out if you want to. 
You should know what you're making and what you're giving. What you're making. But why? Because the lightning of God's grace should put on display the thunder of giving. I want to be living radically different with my giving. But you've got to stop guessing. Until you get honest with where you really are in your giving, not what you think you're doing, there's no way you can make progress to a new place. Get honest. Then, number two, listen, get help. Stop trying to fix it on your own. Oh, man. Einstein, smart guy, right? Said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. That's what some of you are doing with your money. That was a rough year. Hope next year goes better. Not if you don't make any changes. It's like, what are you going to do differently? Get help. Vicky and I were in a marriage mess. We had talked ourselves blue in the face past each other. I don't think we ever would have got unstuck without inviting someone to speak into our lives that would tell me things I wasn't seeing about me and tell her, and we're at a better place, praise God. Some of you are not going to get out of the financial mess you're in without help from some. Invite someone else to walk with you. Obviously, you haven't figured it out. Get help. So jump online and sign up for the class that we're about to offer, Life, Money, Legacy. Starts March 9th, five weeks, and get this, free. We've been doing Financial Peace University for years, but it costs money. This is free, free. Why not invest five Monday nights at the beginning of 2020 to get on a path? And 2020 may not end with, whoa, but you're on your way to a new place Because you made plans, you set some goals, you got some help. Stop trying to fix it yourself. Get some help. Number three, don't just hope to give. Lock it in. Oh, we live in a great day, you guys. You don't have to remember to write the check. Oh, I meant to write the check, but we were at the lake. Oh, here's some really good news. You can go online, push pay, have you heard that? And sign up to give automatically, regularly to your church. And every other ministry I know has the same deal. Vicky and I have signed up. We're, we're online with our giving that automatically goes to grace. And then we've got five other ministries outside of this church that we automatically give to. And here's what you're saying when you do that. God, I acknowledge it's all yours. And I'm giving to you first, right off the top. And then I'm going to trust you to help us live and do what we need the rest of the month. Instead, what some of you keep doing is doing everything you need to do that month and seeing what's left. And often it's goose egg. It's a matter of faith. I mean, there are times, I got three kids in college. There are times that all of a sudden when I get the, you know, the tuition thing, it's like, whoa, dude, it's not 2,200, it's 4,800. Why? Oh, there were some labs this time. Labs? Wow, what do you, But we already gave. And so then we look to God for grace to get through that month instead of saying, oh, we can't give this month. We give off the top from the beginning saying, God, that's a given. Now we trust you to help us sign up to give. And here's the other good thing with this. Use your credit card. I mean, Vicki and I have signed up for our church giving on my Delta Reserve American Express. Shameless. Church gets the money. We get the miles. It's a win for everybody. Right? I flew Vicky to her mother's house in Georgia last year four times. 
with four tickets that cost me $11.20 because I paid for it with miles. And she helped her mother clean out the house. She helped her mother transition her father to a nursing home. That was a huge blessing, but it was the result of us giving online with our credit card and piling up some miles. You can have it drafted from your checking account, however you want to do it, but make your giving automatic. Lock it in. And then get this. Don't just set it and forget it. Grow. Some of you heard me say this years ago, and you said it, we're going to give $100 a month. Your income has increased. Why haven't you gone back and looked at that? Don't just set it and forget it. Grow. Plan to grow. Plan to grow. I want to be growing in my giving. Plan to grow. So look again at the chart on the back of the bulletin. Tried to make this helpful. Got a few emails from people saying, oh my goodness, how do you know who tithes? We're guessing. Settle down. Take a breath. We don't know what anybody makes. But here's what I do know. I can Google these three counties, Boone, Kenton, Campbell County. The average income is $56,000. Hebron and Union was ninety dollars to $100,000. Hello, Hebron Union people. Welcome. <laughs> but here's the deal. We understand everybody's not in the average. So we know there's some people making more and there's some people making far less. So we just guessed and said, if you're giving 3000 to $10,000, that's probably a tithe. And we're just guessing. But what we do know is that there was a whole herd of little cars giving nothing. Push the accelerator just a little bit. Go to the next level. If you're giving nothing, start giving something. If you're giving, but it's random Just every now and then, lock it in. Go to that next. I just want everyone to grow a little by the grace of God. So set up your giving to be regular and automatic. Whatever the amount is, experience it and trust God and say, I'm going to lock it in ahead of time. If you've never done that, do that this year. If, If like me, you're tithing, but you've been doing that a long time. I started tithing when I was seven. I'm so grateful my parents taught me that. It wasn't hard to start giving 10% of a really good salary because I'd already given 10% of McDonald's, 10% of all along the way. I know it's painful if you've never done this to all of a sudden like, whoa, but grow. If you've never moved that direction, grow a percentage or two. And if you're locked in, say, God, should I? Should I dip my toe into extravagant Grace giving. Because here's the deal. I praise God. Vicki and I have not had money fights in our marriage because she grew up at Sherwood Baptist Church and she was taught to tithe. I grew up in Chattanooga and was taught to tithe. We tithed for the first 20 years of our marriage. No matter what I made, $10,000 living in a mobile home, tithing. So that was not our fight. But as my income increased, now hear me on this, and we kept a gospel gap grace gap between how we were living and how we could be living we were able to increase our giving some years as high as 21 percent we didn't just step it up and say oh praise god thank you lord don't hear me say we didn't do any nicer things hear me we redid the whole kitchen and knocked out walls yes we tore out nasty carpet from five kids and put in hardwood floors yes but we didn't do that we didn't And now we can't give. We increase. I'll give you another one. When I got married, I was poor. I bought my wife a ring that cost $500. You're like, is there a stone on there? I think so. 
I started seeing girls in our church engaged saying, oh, I got engaged. And the stone's the size of a, an automobile headlamp. And I'm like, you know what? My wife's a wonderful woman. I, I said to her, and this was so funny. I was watching football one, one afternoon, and she sits down and said, hey, would you be interested in a different ring? She's like, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, she went upstairs, did research. I mean, that day. And I spent $7,000. Some of you are like, 7000 It's much better than it was. I bought my wife a nicer ring. We fixed her teeth. We, don't hear me saying like, ah, oh, to the glory of God, we're giving to kingdom business. Like you, just keep that little ring and your teeth can be tr- crooked and we'll live on this nasty carpet because we're living kingdom-minded woman. No. I have increased some of our standard of living. That is okay. But we didn't eat up the entire gap. Does that make sense? Grace gap, gospel gap. Because listen to this. It shocked me. Probably going to shock you. You would be shocked at what God could do through you if you get on this path of grace giving, sacrificial grace giving. I sat down at the end of last year, crunched the numbers, and by the grace of God, not in my lifetime, I I haven't kept track of what I've given away since I was seven, since we arrived here in 1996. By God's grace, God, through Vicki and me, we've given $475,000. And that's on a pastor's salary. That's with five kids. And that's with my wife working her tail off inside the home, not outside of the home. Not a sin for you ladies to work outside the home, but I just want you to know that wasn't two incomes. That was one. And yet by the end of this year, Lord willing, we will have given in excess of a half million dollars away. And we got some decades left, I hope, unless I get hit by a car. Imagine what we might be able to... And, and we've increased some of our standard of living at the same time. Oh, listen to me. You have no idea what God might be able to do through you. Number three. Here's the deal. If you're sitting there saying... We don't have that kind of discretionary income, Brad. Neither did we. Here's what you need to understand. If you keep waiting for the moment you think, well, there's a whole bunch of X, it's never going to happen. Number three, you will rarely see God provide abundantly until you first start giving sacrificially. It's an act of faith, you guys. Oh, my goodness, because here's the deal. In verses 8 to 11... Those four verses are packed with some incredible promises. Because here's what's up. If you didn't know this, God actually has unlimited amounts of money. That's not the problem. You know what the problem is? There are only a limited amount of Christians, a limited number of men and women who are willing to not keep all the money that comes their way and are willing to generously move it towards places and things That God is at work. And when he sees that, oh, listen to me, it gets his attention. You stand out. He's like, oh, look at that. I've been looking for that person. Here's what he'll do. He sends you more seed money to fund the things. that I hope you realize it's great when you have stories about how you prayed and God provided for you. I've got them. You've heard me tell some of them. Here's what's also cool. When you've got stories of how you were the answer to someone's prayer. Do you want to live your whole life and only have stories about how God provided? What about, I'm telling you, it is so exciting when I'm praying and God brings something to my mind. I'm thinking, 
all right, I don't know anything that's going on, but it just won't go away, this person. And when I go to them and say, all right, I just really feel like God wants us to give you this. And I'm not talking about $25 either, you guys. Bunch of money. And they begin to weep and tell me exactly what was going on. And they'd been praying. You realize when God sees one of his children that has a need, he doesn't rip open their roof and drop a bag of money in their living room. That is so cool. And we prayed, let's do that again. He redirects money that other Christians have to them. But those Christians have to be listening and thinking, God might want me to meet the needs of someone else. And oh, when he sees that you're that man or woman, that it doesn't all stay with you, he begins to fund it and take care of you. God promises, letter A, God promises that he will meet your needs as you start meeting the needs of others. Isn't it fear, right? We just think, oh my goodness, but if we give this, what if we find ourselves in a time of need and we're going to wish we'd kept that? Look at me because I want you to look right at me as I say something. I've been on this path of grace giving for five decades now. Started when I was seven and for 33 years of marriage. And when I first married Vicki, I'll admit she was a little scared. She's like, oh, baby love. (laughs) She's not scared anymore at all because we have never experienced giver's remorse. Ever have we said, oh, that was so dumb. We need that back. Hey, could you give that back? Did you spend that already? Never. I've experienced buyer's remorse. That sinking feeling right after you take on that big ticket item. Never giver's remorse. I'll tell you why. Look at verse 8. God is, say it, Able. Some of you only know what you're able to do with your money. And God sees that whatever goes to you mostly stays with you. And so he's like, all right, good. I hope you can work it out. You want to see what God can do? Start funding what he is doing around the world. God is able to make all grace. He's talking about money there. This word grace all through these chapters about money. He's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things It's almost like he anticipates, but what about when kids are in college? But what about when we have at all times so that you may abound in every good work? See, God promises to keep funding your giving when he sees that money doesn't stay with you. You don't keep all that he sends you. And and they're hard to find. Look at what he says in verse Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply and multiply your seed for sowing. It's not for keeping, for sowing. And then verse 11 is even more clear. You will be enriched in every way. Look at me. We've got televangelists and best-selling books acting like that verse stopped right there. You will be enriched. And you start giving away money, you will be enriched in every way. Planes, boats, cars, houses, the king's kids go first class. Please shut up. That is not a name it and claim it verse. You will be enriched in every way. It doesn't stop. To be generous in every way. When he sees that it doesn't stay with you, he brings more of it to 
you. Because he's trying to get it. To, so here's how I would say it. That is not a name it and claim it verse. Get this. I made this up this weekend. It's a find it and fund it verse. Don't you like that? Two Fs. Find it and fund it. Find where God's at work. Find what God's doing in our world. And you start to fund it. You start to fund it. And you start to fund it. And when he sees you funding what he's doing instead of just your own kingdom, he brings you more. He brings you more. Not that you can pad your lifestyle and raise your standard of living, but that you can increase your level of giving. And then it's worth noting that Paul brings the whole thing back to Jesus. He sticks the landing on his entire dissertation about grace giving by bringing it back to Jesus in verse 19. But thanks be to God for his indescribable or inexpressible gift. He's talking about Jesus. 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 Why does Paul do that? Because Paul knows financial principles alone will never make you a grace giver. Financial principles could make you a more savvy investor and saver. When you keep looking at Jesus, he, he wants to end this with us looking at Jesus. Not statistics, not charts, not return on your investment. When you look at Jesus, when you never get over what Jesus has done for you, it makes you a more gracious, sacrificial giver. Randy Alcorn says this, gaze on Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. And here's what's so exciting. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. This is so much what our God, every other religion takes from you. Christianity has a Savior that gives. He gave his very best. gave his life. That's why John 3.16 is so, the most well-known, well-loved verse probably in all the world. For God so loved. And he didn't say he wished he could do something. He intends to that he say, say it. Gave what was left over his only begotten son that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Gaze on Christ long enough and you will become more of a giver. Give long enough and you will become more like Christ. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit and thank you for our savior. And Lord, thank you for allowing us to get in on what you're doing in our church and around this world. Oh, Lord, may may you enable us by your spirit to put on display the lightning of your grace by the thunder of our giving. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.